Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. Hi, everyone. Hi. Uh, welcome to I Am Speaking. Today, we have a treat. We do. Say. Well, a treat that can feel heavy on your heart sometimes because it's very insightful. Our speaker is really insightful um, about so many things. And we're going to go a little deep into things like racism and things like trauma, trauma and and what it is like to be you know, have one foot in one world and one foot in the other and not feel like you belong anywhere, actually. So our guest, her name is Karen Rothstein-Pineda. She is a therapist in Oak Park. She also is a first-generation American who has such a unique background. And I, I was blown away. Me too. I really was. We could have kept talking for a long time. And the way that she speaks was with such vulnerability and with such empathy, but clearly she, she talks about conceptualizing a client and she, she was so humanizing when Absolutely. she was talking about all of these different groups and her own experience. Yeah. I know that when we had talked, you and I had talked about bringing a therapist in to speak to these issues of generational trauma, we thought we were going to get a more clinical, you know, 10,000 foot level about like, oh, this is what happens in certain populations. I certainly didn't expect to be speaking with someone who's going to share their own stories of what it was like to be an immigrant, the kinds of, you know, immigrants child, um, the kinds of challenges that she faced growing up. Um, and, and the connection to the clients that she sees, which I think, you know, that's one of the most amazing things about speaking with Karen is that is that you get to hear both the big picture, but then also have it really personalized for you when she talks about her own experiences. So please enjoy Karen Rothstein Pineda is speaking. <laughs> She's the worst. Okay. I'm not the worst. You're you the worst. You are the worst. Okay. I think that's the, that's the beginning right there. I know. She's the worst. No, you're the worst. Hi, we're sisters. And we're the worst. Yes. Shalushi is more the worst than me. I'll start Perfect. by saying. Okay. Have you done a podcast before? Yeah, I have. Okay, okay cool. We haven't. <laughs> <laughs> this, is your first po- this is like your first one? No. no we no, have no, recorded no. a few, but uh-huh. um, this is, uh, we have only aired two episodes so far. And this yeah. is certainly our first in... Like, in a the more professional space. digs in like my yeah, office. The one yeah. I did last year was on um, Zoom. It's called not on Zoom. It was on um, another one of those platforms. A platform yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was back in the midst of Corona. So. Oh, it was. Yeah. 
So, you know. Yeah, we're getting through it. Yeah, well, it's hopefully we'll be out of this soon. I, yeah, I know. I mean, on your website, it says that you really focus on minorities. Yeah. And like, you maybe- have a lot of, we do, we do a lot of work with trans kids. Yeah. Oh. And a lot of bi- non-binary kids. Awesome. That is great. And then so I'm like, maybe Karen can be like our resident. Yeah. Therapist. I'm flattered. I would love that. That, Like you just come on once or twice a season and we talk talk about what we're talking about during that season. We I would love something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I mean, I think this is great. And it's I don't know, it's like I love the name of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the one thing I'll take credit for is I had to like take her out to lunch to like talk about the pot. Like, this is what I think we should do. She's like, oh, I'm so busy. What what are we going to talk about? I said, we call it I am speaking. And she goes, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Keep talking about this. Because that's brilliant. You know, it's like that moment when yep. Kamala Harris it, said it, it in that, said it in the, um, in, in, the, yeah. in, in the, the debate. debate. It mm-hmm. was, it was like the most beautiful it moment was. ever. And it was one of those things where it was a statement that women often want oh, yeah. to say, don't get to say. And it was such a reclaiming of her power and her place. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was just thrilled about how it's how it's playing out. So, hello, my name is Karen Rothstein Pineda. I am speaking. So, Karen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I. First of all, I'm also a first generation immigrant. I am actually twice, I guess, immigrant. Uh, my dad is the son of German Jewish immigrants in Colombia and first generation. And my, I'm also first generation from Colombia here in the United States. That's personal, my, my, my personal stuff. Professionally, I own Multicultural Counseling Associates, the therapy practice here in Oak Park, Illinois. And our focus is working with Generally, people that aren't necessarily going to go to therapy to other places, who aren't comfortable necessarily going to a white therapist or traditional forms of therapy. So we work with a lot of folks of color, a lot of the BIPOC community. Mm -hmm. We also work with a lot of the LGBTQ community, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning communities. And yeah, and I've been in business my practice has been open for five years, and I've been a therapist since 2003, so a long time. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about, you You alluded to it just a bit, can you talk a little bit more about the clients that you see generally in terms of who are they and, and what's motivating them to start seeking therapy? A lot of times, you know, therapy is, I think, a need. And a lot of times the typical client who comes to us is somebody who's depressed, who's anxious, wants to talk to somebody, but wants to talk to somebody that looks like them, but also wants to talk to somebody that understands their experience, who isn't going to feel, that isn't going to exotify them or make them question who they are or necessarily test their cultural values. You know, there's a lot of wonderful therapists out there. However, one of the things that I think limits some non-BIPOC therapists is understanding that certain things are very cultural. For example, in the Latino community, the Latinx community, we live at home. 
I mean, we live at home with our, I mean, my, I joke around that we live with our parents until we get married and then we get married and two years later, they'll move in with us. <laughs> and there are so many therapists who will see a 30-year-old man living with his parents. And while that may not necessarily be an ideal situation, it is something where it's pretty typical. And it's not necessarily that this person is stuck in adolescence. It's that if you were living in Colombia and Mexico or in South America, yeah, you'd be living with your parents. Sure. Well, I know I know. I have a friend from Colombia mm-hmm. and he is a physician. And he said in Colombia, for example, if you want to do a specialty, then you have to pay. Like they don't pay the residents. You have to pay them to get your specialty. So you end up living at home for longer as you're becoming a physician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it really has nothing to do with maturity. Right. It's a lot of culturally imprinted, financially imprinted, and it's not really about your social or social abilities. <laughs> nothing to do with nothing to do with maturity. It's right. economic or it's just convenient. Sure. And I can imagine that if you don't have the cultural framework to understand a client that's coming to you and and you start with, okay, tell me about your background, what's going on in your life. And, you know, a 35-year-old man says, I live at home with my parents. In, you know, the dominant U.S. framework, there's something problematic about that and it ends up being pathologized. This is a problem. Exactly. Or... Other things can be exotified. I know for myself personally, I remember in college seeing, I mean, and she was a wonderful white therapist. She was so good. She helped me out so much. I didn't realize until years later that I was being exotified. I would, when I was growing up, I would travel to Colombia every summer to see my family. And that was my summer. The same way some kids get sent to camp, I got sent to Colombia and I had a blast every single summer. And she was like, wow, you've traveled so much. And it was like, no, I just go to see my grandma every summer. You know, we talk about because we went to India every summer for a long time. And it was actually a little bit the opposite. Like it was kind of boring. And now we talk about it and people are like, "Ooh, you got to go to India. That sounds like a dream, all the food and all the this. And I'm like. We went so my mom can see her parents, and we sat in their flat and played a shit ton of gin rummy. It was yeah. boring for us. Yes. You know? Well, it's funny you say that. We would also, basically, my mom is from a very small town in Colombia, and so I would have a blast there. In When we went to Bogota, which is the glamorous part Capital, of Colombia, right? <laughs> My brother and I sat and we watched Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I don't know how many times. Yeah, sure. Because small town is sort of a lot more freedom. Lot Everyone more f- mm-hmm. knows who you are. You can get around. You go to a big city. It's like, uh-uh. Yeah. Other you need what, to be home. You're boring. It's, and it's boring. It, it really exactly. is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I can definitely relate to, to that experience where it's like, no, it's not this exciting, glamorous life. It was just my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what I mean in terms of the people that come to us want that, want somebody that isn't going to exotify them, isn't going to ask questions that are kind of obvious, but also 
that just looks like them. You know, and it's interesting because a lot of people, though, think that, okay, you're brown, I'm brown, or you're Colombian, or you're Latinx, and I'm Latinx. I don't have to explain a thing. The reality, though, is my experience as a first-generation Colombian Jewish woman is going to be very different than a first-generation Mexican woman. You know, very, very, there's different experiences. So I may ask questions, but it's not because I'm trying to learn all about your culture, all of that. It's because I just need to know, like, what was like elementary school like for you? And it's very different, I think, coming from another brown person or another immigrant, somebody that looks like them versus somebody that has no idea about their culture. And it's very scary. I'll be honest, you know, it's very scary to go to therapy in general. And it's more scary for somebody that's brown or black or BIPOC. It's very, it's much more scary because you don't know what this person is going to say to you or what kind of, what kind of microaggression you're going to experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even... I hadn't even thought about it that way. I had thought more about, one, you're absolutely right. Therapy is just the process of starting therapy is scary because you know, just my experience was very much like, I don't know what this is going to crack open. Mm-hmm. And what is this going, where am I going to, you know, what path is this going to lead me down? The second thing about it is, I think in a lot of BIPOC communities, therapy's not a thing. Right. Right. It's more the MO for many cultures. And I think particularly immigrant cultures, immigrant families is we don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. There's a respectability issue within the community, both your, you know, your cultural community and then larger community. Everything is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, in Frozen, they say like conceal, don't feel. That's really what. And and the other thing I can imagine in these smaller communities, you do want someone to look like you to understand that experience. But at least for in the Indian community, in the older generations, there's also a sense of, well, if she's Indian, if my therapist is Indian, then what if she tells people what I said? Mm-hmm. Is it going to get out that you know, I had XYZ trauma or Mm -hmm. that I'm even going to therapy because the truth is in a lot of Indian communities, gossip and rumor mongering is a a severe issue. Right. And so that there's not that trust of the patient therapist confidentiality. Right. And so it's complicated, right? And so like that's something that's a nuance with the Indian community where, yeah, like that therapist has to win over the client to say no. It's actually illegal. I mean, I tell people if I even run into you in the street, I can't even acknowledge you. Not because I'm being rude, but because if I even mention, if I even acknowledge you, that's basically saying I'm your therapist. Or people will ask you how you know that person. And I can't even do that because that'll put you in an awkward situation. That's violating confidentiality. And you could, and I tell them, you could actually report me to the ethics board. Here is their number. Because if I ever do that, and so that's kind of like, there's ways to win them up. That's one way that I've kind of been able to do that with people. But it is hard. And it's very scary for somebody 
who in the Indian community, in the Latinx community, not as much because there's so many of us that it's really hard. I mean, if you go outside your neighborhood, you're not going to run into. There's different issues with the Latinx community around that. But that is a very real issue. And you have to have a therapist who gets that and who understands that and is able to acknowledge it and be able to um, to explain confidentiality is real. And yep, everything, the fact that you even are here is confidential. Like nobody can call me and ask about you, nothing. And uh, Kosha's right, rumor mongering is definitely a thing, but there are real consequences to stories that people tell about you mm-hmm. or your family. You know, we know, for example, that there, uh, you know, we have this person that we know who was looking to make a match marriage. Mm-hmm. There was a good match out there. That person um, had some mental health challenges and uh, the other family was like not interested. So even yeah. the even the hint of something could derail someone's future prospects in some way, in a way that's very unfair, but also, you know, very real. Very, it really very, does play out like that. It's very, very real. Yeah. We also have, I mean, you work, you said you work with a lot of the LGBT community. We know somebody very similarly who they were looking for a match for the younger mm-hmm. sibling. The older sibling is gay. And it was this whole, well, if he's gay, if he's out and proud, what then that- what does that mean for the family? How is this going to affect the match? Then the younger sibling is not going to be able to get matched with anybody because. Mm-hmm. And so not only are you shoving people back in the closet because of all of this, all of this other family bullshit, but you're also or cultural stuff, I suppose I should say, but also that these people are not going to then feel comfortable going to therapy because they're constantly being told that what they're thinking and feeling is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's a barrier that a lot of people have to therapy. And it's, I think I'm kind of losing, I'm kind of losing my words here, but it is something that you know, you have to work through. And if somebody, like once somebody comes through my doors or gets online with me, it a lot of those barriers, there's usually a reason. And I think usually with BIPOC folks, when they get through the door, it's because it's really, really bad. Hmm. Because You know, I've worked, especially with some, um, with some immigrant Latinx women who the depression is so severe. By the time they get to me, the depression is so severe and it's really, really bad. And so, yeah, a lot of times with certain groups, you're going to see really, really severe cases in terms of the Latinx and the actual, also to the African-American communities, like the Latinx, we don't talk about our business to a therapist. That's for crazy people, right? However, you talk, you talk to these things with your comadre. You talk about these things with your hairdresser. You talk about these things with anybody else that's not a therapist, which is great. I think social support is a great thing. However, you know, if you're untrained, if you're, if you're depressed and untrained, it's, oh, just snap out of it. Or, oh, just, you know, do keto and you'll feel better. Or <laughs> just go work out and you'll feel better. Right. Which can help some people, but... 
depression is a real thing or anxiety or certain things are very real. I suffer from severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard like, what are you anxious about? Or what do you just have you have you tried to not worry? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, that you just fixed me. I didn't realize I was supposed to not worry, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying. Yeah, or the, or like, have you tried just taking Valerian every oh, night? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to switch tracks a little bit and talk more specifically about the kinds of challenges that BIPOC people, and particularly first-generation individuals might, face, if you have any insight into that, and you're saying depression and anxiety, are there other issues that tend to arise more with immigrants or first-generation Americans? I think with first-generation Americans specifically, you have the issue of acculturation, where you have mom and dad over here who are old school, you know, general, I mean, this is it's very stereotypical. I'm painting in very, very broad. Sheila, she and I are nodding because we're like, <laughs> oh, I totally, yep, mom and dad, old yeah, school, you totally have get old it. Old school. And then you have this child who is trying to fit in to the, to the United States. And so you'll have a parent who's like, well, why do you want to go to prom for? That's just a dance. What's the big deal? Why do I need to buy you a $300 dress for prom or those kinds of things? Or, why are you dating at 16? Why are you doing this? Or, you know, or these Americans, they do this. And so you see a lot more conflict with a child and a, and a parent because it's just a different world. I mean, I experienced it too. And a lot of people do. Um, that's one of the things. The other one, I think, is the identity piece of, okay, I have part of me who is from India or from Mexico, from Colombia, from Italy, wherever. And I have this part of me that was born here. And a lot of just identity, those identity issues and trying to make sense of who they are and who they want to be and how they want to represent their culture if they, all, if they do at all. Because you see a lot of people who just want nothing to do with their, who they are with their culture. And that's actually part of acculturation is kind of rejecting it for a while and then kind of bringing it back in, if not, if ever. So those are kind of just in broad strokes, some of the big things that you see in addition to racism, language barriers, um, how to raise your children, those kinds of things. I imagine also like expectations because. Yes, that's another one. Because one of the things that we've talked about with several of our guests is this idea of, you know, immigrant parents come here, they tend to have given up a lot in their home country mm-hmm. to come here. And so it's like, we gave up X, Y, Z for you to have a better life. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I know we've gone through that and a lot of our friends and cousins, and and I imagine that that's 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 a heavy that's a very heavy that's a very heavy burden for a child that you have to succeed because we gave up this or just parents not understanding the educational system because there's also like what I'm seeing too with some with certain families with some actually mainly Mexican families where there are people that you know a lot of the people coming here from Mexico not everybody but 
you have a group of people that come from these very, very poverty-stricken areas of Mexico. And so they come here and, you know, you're working at a factory making, you know, $10, $15 an hour. That's a lot better than how they were doing in Mexico. So why would you want to go to college? We're doing fine kind of attitudes. Like I know, oh, I, see. I know somebody personally who had to fight her parents to get to go to college. To the extent possible that you can share that story without giving out any, mm-hmm. you know, details that would violate confidentiality. I think that would be a really fascinating story for both the two of us, but also for our readers, readers, our listeners to hear. Someone might be reading the transcript of this podcast. (laughs) Our (laughs) listeners to hear, which is that um, so often the stories of immigrants, at least, you know, people that we know, it's like, well, you have to go to school. You have to do well. There are only a handful of careers that are acceptable Mm -hmm. um, because you have to secure, you know, your financial stability, then you need to get married and we want it to be like this. And then there's a, there's a right time and a place for everything. And there's almost like a pros, prescribed path. Mm-hmm. So this is a really different flip side to hear people be like, we're fine. Why would you want to go to college? Yeah. Because yeah, because we're making good money. We make $15 an hour, you know. I and think- we weren't eating every day in Mexico. Exactly. But now we have food on the table. So we have come so far. Yeah. Well, this is actually this is actually my ex-wife who this is what this was her experience where she's the first person in her family to go to college. And she t- she had a story about how she told her mom, "Okay, I'm either going to go to Columbia College or I'm going to join the army. You pick." And of course, mom was like, "All right, fine, go to college." Oh, <laughs> right. But that was that's kind of like her personality. So, yeah, that's one experience. I know my experience was very similar to yours. I come from a family that's a little bit wealthier in Colombia. And so um, when I was in college, I wanted to study theater. I wanted, you know, I, I still, I wanted to study musical theater and that was, forget about it. That, was, okay. the, that <laughs> was the biggest family drama. One of the big family dramas that I grew up with. And I like that you said that was the family drama. And then you're like, wait a minute, just one of them. Yeah, there were plenty of <laughs> <Exactly>. them. <laughs> I was challenging. Let me say that. And my mom's probably listening to this and she'll, she's laughing. And she's just nodding along. Yeah, like, yep. yeah, I was a pain. <laughs> but <laughs> but one of the dramas was I wanted to be, I wanted to study musical theater. And for my mom, it was Karen wants to be an actress. What's that? Actresses, you know, are have bad reputations. Actresses don't make money. You know, this whole thing about my future when if you know, well, back in the 90s, the way college worked was you studied whatever you wanted. Then you went to law school or you went to grad school. Personally, I could be doing the exact same thing I'm doing right now with a musical theater degree. But my parents didn't understand that because in Colombia, you pick your major when you're out of high school, you go to college and that's what you study. And that's your career. You study engineering, you go to med school, you study law, and you know from the time you're 17, 18 years old. And so it's very, the the systems are very different. And so yeah, the conflicts are there. Just getting her to, and we have experienced the same thing is that's just not how it works here. And trying to, I mean, you had said something about 
like, why do you need to have a boyfriend? Why do you have to go to prom? In our in our family, it's like no dating. You are like, there's no dating. There's not even a question about dating. And then you're old enough. Why aren't you married yet? <laughs> right? It's yeah. like, well, now, I mean, we talk about this. Shayla, she was 28 when she got married and our parents were like, oh, thank God. You know, like, because you're so old now. But it's well, like, it was it just had- slightly more complicated than that, too. You know, that, again, cultural norms around mm. marriage and dating. Not only is it, oh, my gosh, you're you're getting too old. Maybe nobody will any a good boy won't mm-hmm. be available. But also the older sibling has to get married first before younger siblings can get married. Otherwise, there might be something She's not married. What's wrong with your family? Mm-hmm. Then prospects for younger siblings go away. So there is both anxiety for me with my parents, but also other siblings, which is if you don't get married, then other people can't get in line either. Wow. You're holding it up for everybody. It's funny that you say that you're difficult because I think my parents would have described me as much. I'm just much, <laughs> just too much. A little too loud. It doesn't go with cultural norms around what women do and how women act. So Mm -hmm. absolutely makes all sense. Right. And I'm sure it was a lot of culture stuff. Like I was 15 wanting to date. And uh uh-uh. Like in Colombia, no, I was not allowed to date. And if I wanted to date, it, it was a whole complicated thing. And, you know, I was sheltered because that's what you, that's what, you do in Colombia. And so I hear you. And I was the same thing. But also, I think one of the pieces I want to talk about, too, is the racism piece, because I think and I'm I'm going to speak from my own experience. I don't think a lot of immigrant families truly understand the racism that you're going to experience until you get here. I know my parents I don't think they even still under really understand how the racism is and how bad it is. And so in terms of myself, we never talked about it. We were just like, oh, no. I remember, for example, in high school, nobody wanted to date me at all. And I thought it was because something was wrong with me. I was ugly. Maybe I was too fat. Maybe I had some, maybe something was wrong. And no, it was because... I had a Jewish last name and I was brown. So nobody in very white Akron, Ohio at the in the eight, late 80s would want to date somebody like somebody that looked like me. But it nothing to do with something being wrong with me. If anything, I was shy, but that was it. So I was then angry. And so what can contributed to me being difficult, which was A. I wasn't allowed to just like invite a boy over or just start, you know, like, you know, I wasn't allowed to do certain things to date. Even if I'd wanted to, I wouldn't have gotten a date. And I was angry and I would take it out on my parents. And I think it affected our relationship for a long, long time. I mean, now we're healing, but I'm now in my 40s. Yeah, that story resonates with me too. Not exactly, you know, not obviously not the exact details, but this sort of limits and restrictions that prevent you from fully engaging as as a person who 
feels like they belong in the United States. You know, I think I have a theory mm-hmm. that um, immigrants don't actually expect to be fully accepted in the United States. Mm-hmm. They just come and they know they don't belong here. They don't actually, this is not their place of belonging. So they're content to keep their heads down and work hard. And, you know, maybe someone says something and they continually go back to, we're here for the opportunity. Mm. We're here for a better life. Now, first generation kids, you grow up here. This is your home. There's no other place for you to be than here. And so the same slights and the inability to fully participate in the world that you're surrounded by, it's incredibly frustrating on both ends, right? On one hand, it's like, my parents won't let me do things that all the other kids my age are doing. Mm -hmm. And the flip side is, and those people, those kids or whomever, are basically saying, you don't really belong here. And so you're kind of stuck in a nowhere land. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're trying to have one foot in each world And both worlds are rejecting how you're doing it. Right. And I think, like, I mean, I'll speak for myself. In my case, there was a lot of denial about it. It was just like, my mom would be like, oh, no, you're a beautiful girl. You're a beautiful girl. Don't worry about it. And it was like, no, something's wrong. And you have no, for myself, I had no idea what was wrong until I was much, much older. What is the impact of the model minority myth on some of your clients. Have you seen that play out? Oh, yeah. Actually, for for someone who may not know what a, quote, model minority is, can you explain what that is? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, it's because you are Asian, you are the good ones. And I actually have a friend of mine who explains it as, we're basically like the white, the not the white people, but white people aren't threatened by us because we're the good minorities. We're the ones that aren't causing trouble. We're the ones that aren't in the gangs. You know, the the I bad see. brown people. We're the good brown people. And it's, yeah, it's horrible. Sure. But it's kind of the idea of, um, for lack of a better word, of like a caste, where if you're black, you're at the bottom of the caste. If you're Indian or Asian, you're higher up because... You know, you're you're expected to do these certain things. And um, yeah, it's, I, it's very harmful, actually. And there's an element also of, well, I can say whatever I want. The, the racism part is I can say whatever I want because it's a good stereotype, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. You know, well, all Indian people, you're all doctors. <laughs> and if you say like, what the heck? That's not true. That's like racist statement. It's like, but. I'm saying a good thing, right? Right. When it's like you would never tell a white person, "Oh, you are all doctors and engineers and you all live in the you all live in the suburbs." It's like, "No. That's right. so awful to say to somebody." And for some reason, it's like people think it's okay to say because of brown skin. Yeah, absolutely. And that again, Kosha like you were saying, the fact that it's but it's a compliment. I mean, being a doctor is great. Being an engineer is, you know, that's hard work. And, you know, we appreciate what your people do for mm-hmm. the United States for, you know, for making our country great. But it's it's still very transactional, I think. Right. Totally. It still puts you, whoever you are, in a place of being like, you don't really belong here, but you're helping us out by, you know, being, being a, a doc- doctor in a small town or 
you know, coming up with YouTube, I actually went to high school with someone who was a co-founder of YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that. Yeah. Right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, thanks for helping out. You know, that those kinds of advances and gains are, you know, we're really thankful that your people are here. Right. When, what if, great, that's wonderful, but what if you're Indian or Asian and just want to slack off? I mean, what if you want to um, go live in Colorado and be a farmer? What if you want to just, you know, whatever, like that takes so much choice out of your life. And that's just another level of otheredness where it's like, you're already a minority. Mm -hmm. You're already different. And now you can't even fit into the box that we made for you about being different. Right. Now we have to create another box. And so I'm in sales and I'm in medical sales and so many, even of my Indian clients and customers are like, you're the only Indian sales rep we have, you know, just because it's just not done. Wow. And so it's like, I mean, you really do. It's like painful to keep holding on to those comments like that. It's not a good that's not doesn't feel good. And and you're telling me I'm not even a good Indian person. Right. Well, because you know, my God, why didn't you go to engineering school? And it's like, why are you not smart enough for medical school? Yeah. That kind of thing. And it's ridiculous, right? Because this is, I mean, I'm assuming this is a career that you love to do, that you like your career, that you wanted to Most do Most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's your choice. And if you're in this box, it takes so much choice out of the way. But also, again, also, you're right. It's you do this for us. You do this for the white community when you're just as American as everybody else. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, absolutely. And it puts people who don't choose those paths, you know, those stereotypically thought of as Asian paths on the back foot, having to explain, no, I didn't want to go to medical school. I actually do love pharmaceutical sales to both people on the outside of their community and to people on the inside of the community, Mm -hmm. which is you know, it's like, it's almost like there's no safe space then. You certainly can't be out in the world. And, you know, people are like, why aren't you a doctor? Why did you go into pharma- pharmaceutical sales? And the flip side is when you talk to people within your own community, they kind of look down on you because you didn't go to medical school. Mm-hmm. You didn't become a lawyer. You didn't become an engineer. So you know, there's almost no safe space to be. Do you see a lot of your clients also wrestling with those kinds of things? Um, the Asian clients, yeah. Um, I think, I'm trying to think like with, the Latinx and African-American clients, I see it's more of like, I'm going to speak in terms of Latinx clients. It's more of this. All right. You went to college. Why did you go to college? Why do you need to go to college? Oh, you think you're all that because you went to college. Um, oh, oh, you don't have an accent. You're talking white kinds of things. That's more of what we see because we're the bad, quote unquote, bad minorities. We're the one, you know. You're taking jobs. We're taking, yeah, that Latinx, we're all taking everybody's jobs and we're all gangbangers, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't do that. Also drug dealers. Oh, yeah. Oh, especially you're Colombian. Oh, God. You don't know how many times I've been asked to bring people cocaine from Colombia growing up. Oh, my God. So many times I was asked that. Wow. Like for real? Were they joking? 
half joking, half not. It's the kind, I think it's the kind of joking where it's like, I'm serious, but if you look like shocked, then I could just laugh, yeah. laugh it off like it's a joke, but it's also a very racist joke. Exactly. If, if you exactly. take it, if you are offended, I was just joking. If right. you bring me back cocaine, that's super cool. Th- then I wasn't joking. Now we're being serious. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're being serious. Drug dealer is one of my career choices, right? <laughs> <laughs> I bet it would have earned you a lot more money than this, though. Yeah. You know, well, Karen, I'm in pharmaceutical sales. So technically, I am dealing some drugs. Yeah. There you go. Right. There so- you go. <laughs> Maybe I'm in the wrong profession. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is, though, it's, you know, we have the, and so if you're outside of that, a lot, with a lot of the people that I'm working with, it's you're the first. Um, yeah. And what I'm also seeing, though, too, is if, for example, the parents went to college, then there is that expectation, like you are going, but that's more in like the second generation rather than the first generation. If the person actually got out of all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but you see, y- y- I mean, you also see with the African American community, you're talking white. If you know the whole expression of the, you know, the coconut or in being an Oreo, it's very, you know, very true. You know, it and happens. the code switching. I imagine you know code that switching, yes. the idea that at school you aren't black enough or African American enough, and at home you're too white, mm-hmm. and that must just I, that. Again, I think about just how difficult that is on a daily basis to not feel, as Shailisha was saying, to not feel that you belong anywhere. Well, and the thing about it is people are so resilient that a lot of times, unless you talk about it, they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And, you know, they're microaggressions. You know, they're not. I mean, if somebody asked me once to bring back cocaine from Colombia, ha, 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 whatever, you're a jerk, Right. And that happens once. If it happens 10 times, you know, if you think about it, like as mosquito bites, one mosquito bite is no big deal. 10 is painful. If you have 100 of them, that's an ER visit. Mm -hmm. That is a fantastic metaphor. Thank you. (laughs) But I use it a lot with clients because people are like, oh, yeah, it happened. It's no big deal. But yes, it is a big deal because this happened to you. 500 times this happens to you on a daily basis. And I think that those microaggressions really affect you over the long term. One of the things that I see, at least with my African-American clients, and I cannot speak for everybody by any means, my observation is, at least in the African-American community, it's talked about. They talk about it. They acknowledge it. They talk to their kids about yeah, if you're driving, you be careful when you talk to a police officer. You know, they have that conversation. They tell them, yeah, this is racism. You do this. This is what you say and how you stay alive. Yeah, and also, too, you're beautiful. You're smart. Don't listen to what they say about you. With the Latinx community, it's not talked about as much yet because in Latin— I mean, I'm speaking just for Latin America— In Latin America, if I go to Colombia tomorrow, I'm white. I am the dominant culture. I am, in my personal case, I'm also upper class white, white quote. I put it in quotes because I'm not white, obviously, but I'm. 
You're part of the majority. I'm part of the majority. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. That's the right word. I'm part of the majority culture. So you come here and it's this big change and nobody wants to talk about it. And it happens also, I see it also in Mexico. It's like where you come here and you don't talk about the racism. And I think now things are slowly starting to change, but the race for Latinx folks, the racism happens to black people. And Latinx folks, we are extremely, there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in my community around racism. And we just, so we don't talk about it because if we do, that means we're like the black people, which is horrible. Right. But that's one of the realities that of is, this. That is the mindset, I think, very much, you know, and that's, that's certainly true in India, both in terms of. I'm not quite sure it's, well, it, when people come to the States, it ends up playing out as racism. In India, it's certainly more- Casteism. Ab- casteism and colorism. Mm-hmm. So you want to be fair, which is, you know, whiteness is supreme, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to be fair, but everyone's Indian there. So you're not like dealing with the same kind of, you know, cultural, racial mix of people. Mm-hmm. That part is level set. Yeah. but. Certainly, there's casteism, and then there's colorism as well. About and yeah. that plays out as racism here, which is, you know, racism being the intersection of skin color and socioeconomic opportunity. Yes, that's what it looks like. And actually, I you saying that that's the same exact thing. It's the whole the colorism too. It's like you want to be blonde and blue eyed. You know, my mom. Like, it's funny, my mom caught a blonde hair, blue eyed guy, you know? And so it was like this big deal, you know, and she moved to the States. Mm-hmm. That colorism is alive and well. The classism too is. Yeah. Well, and we crazy. both, both of us are married to American multi-generations in. Um, so we're both married to American husbands and our children are lighter skinned. And it was this just revered. It, when we go back to India, too, your That's, child went to India and everyone just wanted to touch the baby. And, oh, my gosh, they look so fair. They're so fair, their skin, that it's it's really hard to you just it's you like cannot deny that it that it's happening. Yeah. But to your point, we don't talk about it. And what's really interesting, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about you know, that's not us. That doesn't happen to us. And right now we're going through this time where, you know, the Asian American community or the Asian mm. community is just under fire. There's right. just, the hate crimes because of COVID and because of what certain politicians have said and made light of has, has really had a horrifying impact on our Asian communities. Mm-hmm. Back in 2001, the brown community had the very similar experience after 9-11. Yeah. And I remember, you know, my parents and my parents' friends and our aunts and uncles horrified, understandably horrified about what was happening to Muslims and, and Hindus and anyone who looked brown back then. But it doesn't seem to have brought any empathy now that it's not happening to the Indian community, that it's happening to the Asian community. That it's like they forgot 
how horrible it was for us back 20 years ago. Well, and it's hard, I think, to, I think it's hard for people to understand that that could be me. That's, I think, the hard part for people is this is a horrible thing. And I think a lot of people stop short of, oh my goodness, that could be me. Because how scary is that, right? I know recently with the shooting um, that happened, the Adam Toledo shooting that happened here in Little Village, I have a 13-year-old boy. And he's, you know, he's, granted, totally different situation. He, He lives in Oak Park. He I mean, his idea of rebelling is watching too much, you know, playing too much Mario Brother. And <laughs> he goes out and plays Pokemon Go. I mean, he's very innocent, very different situation. However, my ex-wife also lives 15 minutes away from where that shooting happened. And the idea, I mean, it was scary. And it was like, it took me a few days to really think. Like, all I could think about was, if I had made some different choices, this could have been my son. And it's scary. And can you imagine having to live with that? So, I mean, I, I, yeah. I get it. I, I mean, I, you know, I understand how that is. It's like you don't you want to separate yourself from that because and I see it, too, in the Latino community around that where it's like, oh, well, he was in a gang. Oh, well, his mom didn't watch him because it's so hard to think that could be me. Like it's like ingrate like we have to separate ourselves yeah. from that possibility. I'm yeah. really curious about that though, because I've heard a lot of people and not just about that, but taking a step back and saying, is that sort of a natural response to something that's really scary is to try and find a reason why it couldn't be you? I think so. I think that when we think about, you know, things like this, things like shootings, things like, you know, hate crimes. I think that it can feel very vulnerable. You can, you know, the, the, another example I can think about is, you know, violence against women. How so many women basically say, well, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me because I don't dress like that or mm-hmm. I don't go to these parties or I don't drink when it could be. Sure. And, and so it's a way, I think, for people to feel less vulnerable. Do I think it's healthy? No. Do I understand where they're coming from? Yeah, I do. Certainly when things feel out of your control, Mm -hmm. then you're looking for something to give you a little control back, right? I mean, I remember a story about, you know, someone who had gotten sick and, you know, the response to that was like, oh, was it because you did this? Mm -hmm. Is there a reason instead of accepting that, you know, sometimes things happen to people Without reasons. Yeah. Well, and I and one of the things I just thought about too is like, look at even how I explained, describe my son. He's yeah. 13, he's a thirteen year old boy, but he's not like Adam Toledo. But you know, but X Y Z. This is why he's different. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. I did it. I I did it automatically because that's the response you have. Because you know, God forbid that happened. Yeah, but did you do this? Did well, you do this? There's you a blame. There's a victim blaming, right, and a victim shaming, and it just that comes kind of naturally because of that needing to separate. As she, as she was talking, I was thinking, anytime someone says XYZ person has lung cancer, you go, oh, how long has he been smoking? Does uh-huh. he smoke? Mm-hmm. I mean, the answer is most likely yes, but we also know people who get lung cancer and don't smoke. And just because they do, they deserve that. Right. And that's kind of what you're saying. But 
because you really want to say, well, I don't smoke, so I'm not going to have to go through that. Right. When, yeah, you may not go through cancer, but you may get something else. Or I actually had a, lost a friend years ago to lung cancer who never, actually, she taught smoking cessation programs and she got lung cancer. We went to a college where the president, the president of the university got lung cancer, stage four, died soon Mm -hmm. after the diagnosis. And he put out a statement that was um, this lifelong non-smoker was diagnosed with lung cancer. That was like in his statement to everybody because he it was so odd, but it also was, you know, this does happen. Mm-hmm. Like you're not immune. Right. I wonder how that plays out to, I mean, this is a really interesting track to be on this idea that like we look for ways to separate ourselves from people as a way of protecting ourselves, mm-hmm. like in telling ourselves a story that that's not going to happen to us. You know, we are... We're the good immigrants. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we're going to do X and Y. So that kind of violence won't happen to us. Right. Or, you know, we are very family focused. So that kind of, we would never let our kid run around on the street at 11 o'clock at night because we take care of our kids or, right. you know, we pay attention or my kid's not like that or whatever it is. And because we need something to help us feel like we have control in a world where we actually don't have a lot of control about anything. Exactly. Exactly. The reality is, you know, God forbid, something could happen to us. We could be walking across the street and get hit by a car. And that's totally out of our control. I mean, you look both ways, but things happen. Absolutely. Karen, you've, I, I'm learning and it's like I'm talking to a, we're talking to a friend yeah. who is brilliant and well, is, thank you. Is, can help all of our listeners. I, you know what? I appreciate that so much. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you. Of course. And I think, you know, for what I'm hearing so much of is that part of why, going back to what you were saying in the beginning, that part of why you are a good therapist and your clients trust you is you come with a lot of vulnerability of your own experience and a lot of, listen, I get it because I've been through X, Y, Z. Can you talk a little bit about why... I have a real question in here. Okay. Um, So if we look at the conversations that immigrants are having with their first generation children, Mm -hmm. what kind of intergenerational trauma do you see being passed down? Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's... Is that a whole episode in and of itself? I could talk about intergenerational trauma all day long. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about it then. Well, I mean, think about... I'm thinking about is poverty. Think about Mexico. Think about the people that are migrating here from Mexico. It's not the rich people from Mexico City. Some are, but mainly people from Michoacan, Guanajuato. These, I mean, I've been there. The poverty there is extreme. Like we're talking people who don't have shoes. And you come here and... Things are a little bit better. But at the same time, that scarcity mindset is there. And that's passed on. You know, that's, I see it with my ex-wife. You know, it's that whole idea of, well, we have this. We have a little bit of money. So we're going to spend it versus let's save the money because you have a, you have $10. Well, it may not be here tomorrow. So let's spend it. That That idea, the idea of, Like, I think hoarding also is a big thing because 
for me, for example, I my family doesn't have I didn't grow up from a family with poverty, so I throw things away. Like my idea, like I will Marie Kondo my house till the cows <laughs> mm-hmm. come home. I love decluttering. Does this bring you joy? Yes. Yeah. And I will go through my house with a garbage can, throwing things out constantly. My ex-wife wouldn't do that. And actually her dad, when he was alive, would take things from the garbage and fix them up. Like I would throw something away. He'd be like, no, 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 no. And the next, you know, two weeks later, it would be repurposed into something else. And they never threw anything away. That's intergenerational trauma. That's that is very not going to have this. I see it also with Holocaust survivors, where and I'm I'm going to share my own experience because my grandmother was she came here from Frankfurt, she came to Columbia from Frankfurt right after Crystal Night, and she grew. I mean, I remember her being very very anxious. And my family spent a year in Austria when I was in high school. And I remember so distinctly her talking to me about how I needed to be very, very careful because there was still a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe. And, you know, my last, my maiden name is Rothstein. And she was like, people are going to know you're Jewish. People are going to, and she was so, I mean, I remember the fear in her eyes. And so she passed that. I mean, it wasn't spoken. It wasn't like this big, you know, big thing. It wasn't like I grew up terrified, but she said that. And I was, I remember being in Austria, just a little bit more Guarded. Guarded, but not in a way. Like, if, like I'm sure my mom's listening to this and she's saying, oh my God, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. I remember just thinking about it and wondering about it for a lot, a lot of times. Um, that, but that's intergenerational trauma. Or if you think, if you see like, I think the clear, like the, the easiest example, this is with the African-American community, which I think we were talking about it before the, the show. You know, the African-American community has tons and tons of trauma. There's also, I think, a gen- it's also kind of some of it is passed down in DNA, which the mechanics I don't understand because. I was horrible at science. That's why I You're not a ca- geneticist. I'm not a geneticist. I studied counseling, which is no science. But an example that I learned at a training was if you look at obesity levels in the African-American community, it's higher. And what nobody ever talks about, though, was the slave ships and how people were on these slave ships and they were starved. I mean, I don't know how much food was on there, but the people that survived that horrible journey... You had to have some sort of way of keeping fat on your body, a slower metabolism, so that you could survive on God knows whatever they were feeding them. So, you know, if you were enslaved, that's how you got to survive here. And so now, and then now you're wondering about obesity levels in the African American community. Well, let's take a look at who survived the slave ships, who survived because slavery was deadly to people. I mean, slavery was another Holocaust. And who survived that Holocaust? It was the people, in this case for obesity, one 
example was with the people that could have the babies, who could survive a slave ship. Right, right. And that's why health is so complex, I think, sometimes when we think, oh, you just, it all people want to boil it down to individual behavior. And not to say that individual behavior isn't a contributor to health things, right? right? But genetics is a huge thing, DNA. And systemic racism, where you've got, you know, food deserts in certain areas mm-hmm. where people can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables. I have a background in public health. So a lot of what I had studied in the past is sort of like in in low-income neighborhoods, there's a lot of corner stores mm-hmm. that serve chips and, you know, hostess donuts and soda. And those things are cheap. But if you want to buy a banana and a bottle of water, that's two or three times as much yep. as it costs you to buy a you know, a pack of chips and a soda. Right. And what do you... Yeah, and like value menus at McDonald's, you could you can feed an entire family for $7. Right. And $7 is not going to get you anywhere at a Whole Foods, right? Yeah. So... Um, or even like a... Oh, forget Whole Foods. Even like a Dominic's or a... Dominic's is out of business. So, Jewel you know, Osco. that might be... Right. right. So <laughs> this idea of like... Jewel Osco is not a sponsor. Could, <laughs> yes. Could, you know, buying a pound of apples is like five bucks nowadays. Well... Who can survive on a pound of apples? But you can certainly, if you've got 50 bucks for the week, you can feed your kids and your family. At least people are full. Right. Well, the thing, like ramen, ramen's very cheap. Ramen, macaroni and cheese, the, the cheap food is, yeah, is the, the higher calorie, higher fat food right. versus the fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And I then, know there's a, like, we talk about, you know, um, like buying local and shopping local, but there's a privilege. There's an affluence privilege built into that too. Totally. Yeah. I mean, cause yeah, buying, you can buy local and shop local, but it's more expensive Absolutely. even than Walmart. I mean, people talk about Walmart. I mean, I consider Walmart the devil and they're also not a sponsor, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially when you call them the yeah. devil, they're definitely not a sponsor. <laughs> but you know, it's also, if you, if, you know, you need to buy clothes for your kids, you could, a 20 bucks is going to go a long way at, long, at Walmart versus shopping local. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, it's so complex, the factors that go into, you know, sort of people's choices and, and, and how they move through the world that it's not, it's not as easy as we would like to make it. Exactly. Exactly. So you talk about like intergenerational trauma, you have all of these combining factors. And so the person that you see in front of you is the makeup of generations. The other thing too, I think with Latinx communities is, you know, most Latinos are, are black, native and white. The majority of us are. And the part of it is a lot of Native women were raped by the Spanish conquerors, the conquistadores. So you think about it, this is a whole society full of people that were basically raped and that are the product of rape. Of trauma. Yeah, of trauma. And I mean, I'm going to say of of rape. rape. Of rape. Yes, Uh, absolutely. Of rape and... Murder, honestly, violence around them and violence 
perpetrated mm-hmm. on them. And so, like in Latin, yeah, and in Latin America too, there was a whole system, like a whole, it was a caste system of who was, had more like privilege and who got to be white. I remember, and actually it's so funny, I remember when I was in high school, because I went, I, when I went to school in Colombia, when I went, when I went to the summers in Colombia, they would always put me in school because the school year there is different. And so I would spend a month going to school there. And I remember they were talking about this, but it was talking about it as this is how it was. And it was like, if you were black, if a black person mated with a native person, they were this. Almost doing like a genetics thing, right? Yes. And it was like, and if, like if it were mestizo and a white person, they got to be white. But it was like, I remember just looking at that that system of, okay, this is, and the people that were white obviously had the value. And the people, if you were at the bottom, you know, if you were black, you know, forget it. Forget and it, right. They still, and in Colombia at least, and, I'm, and I think in all of Latin America, I, I think, and I can't speak for other countries, that colorism is there. And- it's not talked about, but you still see it. And well, no, it is, it's, it is talked about. I mean, there's so many racist things that are said, but, you know, but everybody's great, you know, kind of a, I'm yeah. saying that and being sarcastic, but, right. you know, <laughs> but every, we're all the same, but, you know, it's that rate, but it's a product. I think it's also a product of trauma because this was ingrained in this community of people. They're born from trauma. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that situation, how do you, how would you start a recovery? I mean, when, when something, when somebody is a product of generations of trauma that have been passed down, how do you, how would you even start a recovery process? And that's, that's a good question. Well, and I want to just real quickly take a minute before you answer that question and point out, you, know, you had just talked about Colombia, but I think the kind of trauma that you're talking about, generations upon generations, Europeans have inflicted on the whole rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about India under the Raj and then, you know, then freedom and partition and how much violence the way the Brits left India and Pakistan and just went kind of like literally like said, okay, all right, we're leaving with this, yeah. right? Um, we're leaving. You wanted us to leave. What mm-hmm. what has happened in Africa, not just, you know, during the slave trade, but then after in World War II, what's happened in the Middle East, what's happened in South Asia, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, East Asia. It's just that Europeans have generally gone into places where they were quote unquote exploring and have taken over and inflicted all kinds of trauma on the local population that just carries out years and years and years and generations in. Right. Yeah. That's very true. It's a really good point. And it's funny because when you see that person in therapy, you don't talk about it. You know, we don't necessarily, I mean, the person coming in, is coming in because I want help with, I don't want to feel depressed anymore. I want to not cry every time I, this happens. I, I want to leave my abusive partner. And 
you meet them where they are. Because if I start talking about intergenerational trauma, the first session, the person's going to be like, no. If you start talking about obesity on the slave ships, then they're like, that's not what I'm talking about. I want help figuring out what I want to do for a job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm depressed. I'm not talking about the slave ships. But it's something, though, to keep in your mind because... Like, I'm thinking about it, but I'm also, I'm not necessarily going to say, oh, this is what's going on. Now, for example, if somebody's coming to me talking about, I need to lose weight. It's like, talk about that, the slave ship. I need to lose weight. And I don't know what I do. No matter what I do, I can't lose weight. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Then I may bring up, maybe your metabolism is different. Let's look at this, you know, but you have to also... The person has to be ready to hear it. But it's something where I'm not going to say to them, oh, just go on a diet. Or it's going to be something that I know conceptually so that I'm not saying to them, yeah, just lose, just diet and exercise. Have you tried Weight Watchers? They're really good, you know? <laughs> right. And it's- Also not a sponsor. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, people will say that or just lift weights, you know? But you don't know really what goes into you can't judge that you can't just assume these things or if somebody's talking about being afraid of having the lights off at night you know you gotta you can't just be like oh it's just a phobia you have to kind of look at well what's going on what happened in your family tell me what was it like oh did you ever think this And it, so you can't necessarily assume it's intergenerational trauma, but you always, you know, when you're, you know, as a therapist, one of my, one of the trade secrets I'm going to share is you're constantly conceptualizing what's going on and you're constantly thinking about as you're listening, oh, where could this be coming from? Trying to make those connections. Mm -hmm. And, but you're not going to necessarily say something unless you know the person is ready to hear it. And unless you're, and you're meeting that person where they are. So I want to lose weight. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, I'm a big fan of small measurable results. I don't believe in dieting or anything like that. I'm a more of like a, let's talk about what you can do. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Maybe their metabolism is slower. And also, I'm tr- it's like, you know, you're trying to think about that. You're thinking about how do I you know, promote a positive body image? How do I work with them on nutrition? How do I refer them to a nutritionist that understands? You're thinking all those things and you're saying what that person is able to hear right now in the most non-client blaming way possible because you want to I mean I personally feel it's very important to not just be non-victim blaming to be very affirming to that person I can imagine too that for people of color just walking in the door like we had talked about the very beginning is really scary because it's not part of our cultural norms right as a culture certainly Indians don't go to therapy you know and it's expensive. There's a lot of privilege attached mm-hmm. with that too. Um, thankfully, I think more insurers are trying to cover mental health care. But yeah, most actually parity laws, they have to. 
That's cover fantastic. It. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, parody laws that they took an effect years ago where if you have at least in Illinois, mental health has to be covered. Now you may like if you have an HMO, you may have to get a referral, those kinds of things, mm. but with they have to treat it like any other thing. So like they have to treat it like physical therapy, for example. You can't be like, no, no, you don't really need that. No, because the depression is very real. Of course, yeah. Yeah. But All of these things. Yeah, so that's, there is. But the other thing too is emotionally, because, you know, we right before we started, I mentioned I'm loud. And you guys were like, oh, so are we. <laughs> yeah. You fit right in. Yeah, but that's a culture thing, you know? I'm, my family is loud. We are loud. I'm the loudest one, but we're loud. And I know, for example, when I've looked for therapists, I want a therapist that's not going to be scared because I know I'm emotional. I cry at the drop of a hat. I'm loud. I yell like, you know, I, I'm a big, I have a lot of emotions. And part of it is just me. And part of it is I'm Latina. <laughs> this is what we're, this is what we're like, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so it's something like that too, where you have somebody with a lot of feelings generally, because you're going to therapy because you have a lot of feelings. Yeah, right. You're trying and, to work through those feelings. And imagine being with somebody who just comes from a culture that it's like, this is scary. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this person. Right. So that's also scary because I know personally, I've scared some people because I'm too much or whatever. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, Kosha mentioned it earlier that both of our spouses are of European descent and have been living, mm -hmm. you know, their families have been in the States for, I don't know, generations upon generations. Um, so they come from a more typical, you talk quietly at the dinner table mm -hmm. and you say, can you pass the peas? You do not enter. For months, my family thought that my husband was mute. Because he didn't interrupt. <laughs> so he just never talked. Because in our family, that's how you get a word in edgewise, is you interrupt somebody mm -hmm. else talking yeah. to get your thought in. And so it was always, you know, Brian is Brian is so shy and quiet. And interestingly, he takes offense to that. Because he's like, I'm not shy. Just because I'm not talking a lot and interrupting people doesn't mean I'm shy. So it, that comes with a whole set of different expectations and things like that. But what I found, so going back to what you were saying earlier was when they're ready to say, to talk about, okay, this is now inter intergenerational trauma that I'm holding on to. I imagine that that comes often later in therapy because when like, okay, we might have to edit this out, but I'm finding as a 41 year old going through therapy, I'm just now unpacking some of the resentment I have mm -hmm. toward or what I went through as a kid. What, you know, something that we talk about a lot is in our family, there were four of us, four siblings. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't a lot of time and emotional, mental energy to give each child individually. So there was a lot of like, what do you have to be upset about? Why are you in a bad mood? Mm -hmm. We were not allowed to be in a bad mood. And so now, 30 years later, 35 years later, I'm starting to unpack some of that resentment. But that's because 
I did a bunch of the immediate work of therapy. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. You have to be ready for it. And you have to be, because very, I mean, there are people that will come and say, I need to talk about intergenerational trauma. That's generally somebody that's been in therapy before (laughs) (laughs) or who's done a lot, a lot of just self-work. Most of the time people come in and I need help. I need to stop being depressed. How do I stop crying? How do I get out of bed? Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think the reality is, and I was listening to another podcast, maybe it was, might have been Hidden Brain, which does, mm-hmm. NPR does that. Um, and they were talking about memories and stories and how our brains are really good at protecting us from things that are very, very yes. difficult. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the trauma that gets passed down to us from other generations is too much for us to actually process on our own that we have, we have to just pack it away and put in a little parter. You know, the back part of our brain's like, I'll just hold on to this for you. And then you don't ever need to think about this. You don't ever need to worry about this because um, it's too, this is too much. This might actually destroy you if you think about it. So to do it without support, nobody would ever want to go there. Exactly. And exactly. That's exactly what you got. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, and sometimes I'll be honest, I I had a supervisor tell me this years ago and I've, and I've held on to it. Sometimes if there's trauma, you don't have to unpack it. Sometimes it's there for a reason. If, and when the person is ready, they'll talk about it. And if they're not, it's okay. Kosha, you had a question that it's been burning for you for a little bit. Well, something that I'm very curious about from your perspective is this idea of first generation uh, people and how they have they a lot of people feel like they have to be the cultural ambassador. Mm-hmm. And that I think so much of that is, um, you know, passed down. We came here. We have to look good. So your job is to then put India on stage, Mm -hmm. right? You stand on the dais, you represent not just yourself and your family, but the entire country of India. You represent 1.2 billion people. That's a lot of pressure. But it's the same pressure, I think, that happens when there's a shooting and the person is Latinx and then somehow the entire community has to answer. Is on trial. For for this one person. Or, yeah, I mean, we, we have this whole idea about, you know, terrorists. And if you're brown, you're a terrorist. And so, or it, I mean, if someone is involved in a shooting or a bombing or something, and suddenly the entire Muslim community or the entire Sikh community or anyone who wears a turban is on trial now because you have to represent what this one person did. So what... What have you seen it like through therapy or what do you what do you see with how people deal with that and how we can actually help each other deal with that? You know, it's funny the, what I thought about and it's a, I've never actually read the book. So it's, it's on my list of books I'm going to read at some point. Um, Achio Bejas is a local she's a local author from Cuba. And she has a, one of the titles of her books is We Came All the Way from Cuba So You Can Dress Like This. <laughs> that's wrong. and you know that's that's like 
way too close to home. To home. Yeah. Well, my take out Cuba and put in literally every, every any other, other yeah. country. Well, it's so funny because I'm thinking about my mom who'll be like, no, you have to be well dressed all the time. You know, you can't, you know, I remember, you know, even now if I go out and I'm wearing, like I have a pair of ripped jeans that I, I will admit I used to wear to troll her. <laughs> <laughs> Because she, I really hope she's listening to this. Oh, she knows. And she knows <laughs> I used to troll her. But I would do it to troll her because I knew she hated seeing me in those because I'm going out and I am representing myself and the family. She looks she has a sweatshirt. No, well, mom threw it away, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Same idea. Yeah, the mm-hmm. same idea. Or, you know, if I go, if you go out, you have to, yeah, yeah you have to represent because, and then think about it, it's, I think the majority culture, we unfortunately, you know, that the idea of the, the idea of tokenism, the idea of, you know, of all Latinx people were all the same. And I remember, I don't know if this happened to you, but I remember in college, for example, being asked, well, what do we, what what's you know what do Latinx what you know then it was like what do Latinos or Hispanics think about this you know that was the word that was used then mm-hmm. which I hate the word but that's a whole other podcast <laughs> that's why I don't like that word but it's something where we're so othered that of course we're all the same you know and that's that's sarcasm in case mm-hmm. out there people listening don't know. <laughs> that definitely, that. it translated. Yeah. It definitely it's translated. It's sarcasm where if, you know, you're so othered that it's almost as if like it's expected. And it's, again, it's so much pressure on somebody where if, you know, if you're from, if you're just a kid with German heritage, everybody's different, right? And, and that's, that's celebrated. Exactly. Not just expected, but it's cel- we all have differences and they're all beautiful. Well, when I was in college, I had a a classmate ask me, oh, so you're Indian, so do you play tennis? I was like, no, I don't play tennis. It's like, oh, well, every Indian girl I knew in high school played tennis, so I assumed that Indian girls play tennis. And I was like, wow, okay. But I would never think to ask him, so you're a you're a white guy, you know. Did you play football? Mm-hmm. Well, not every white guy plays football. Exactly. We know that because that's a dominant culture. But sort of this like these little pockets that you get put into. Well, you are X, so you must do Y mm-hmm. because that's all that's all the people I know. And you're represent. You must be part of this group, or if you're part of this group, you must act like this or do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. Yeah, you don't, you know, people, for example, people are surprised that I grew up in, um, I, it was actually a suburb of Akron, Ohio. It was called Stowe, Ohio. People are like, what's that? You grew up there? Like, I thought you grew up in Chicago. Nope. I didn't move here till I was 24 years old. <laughs> or, um, mm-hmm. or you went to college? Of course I didn't. I have a, God forbid, I have a master's degree. <gasps> you went you know, beyond college. Yeah, you know, and... Because, you know, Latinx people, we don't go to college, you know? And so, yeah, they, there's this, the stereotypes, which is horrible, but it's, it's the racism is alive yeah. and well in this country. I Everywhere. Think, I think the whole, it's a, not yeah. even a U.S. thing. It's a, it's a worldwide issue. It is a issue. global thing. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. 
I think, you know, talking to you today, one of the things I appreciate talking with every guest, of course, but one of the things I've really appreciated about talking with you is that you're able to represent the views and the experiences of different groups of people, people that we haven't yet talked to. And I think, you know, to be completely honest, my sister and I come from a, you know, a family with a lot of economic privilege Mm -hmm. and in India, a lot of caste privilege as well. So, you know, we're sort of our, the, our family mindset has a lot of privilege involved Mm -hmm. and to hear the flip side of say, you know, if, if you were coming from a poor town in Mexico and now you have a job at a factory where you even get weekends off and you get some benefits, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. right? Um, you get a lunch break and there's some OSHA regulations and whew, this is You've awesome. Made it. You have right? made it. And so then for your kids to want to do something that you're like, I don't understand that. And actually, I don't understand why you would even want to do it. Look at all we have here. Mm-hmm. That's not a perspective that I think Kosha and I grew up with. And it's so, again, to me, I feel like, oh, it's showing where my, my blind spots are. That I always think, well, our you know immigrants' parents push them to do more, to achieve. But there are groups, there are populations for which achieving is um, to be, it's suspicious. Right, or expensive. Like, why would you go to college? Why would you spend all this money to go to college? Or why would you, like, internships? Like, actually, this was something that when my my ex-wife talked to me about it, I was like, oh, I never thought about it. She never did an internship because you're basically paying tuition to work for free. Yeah. And that that concept is like, why would you work for a? Why would you work for free? But also, why would you pay your school money to go work it, for someone to go for work free. for someone for free? Right. And so it's those kinds of things. And you, yeah, it's thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's just a totally yeah. different experience. It is. I mean, when you say that, I think about. When I was in college and I wanted to work, I wanted, you know, some spending money for myself. And I told my parents I was going to take this job. I ended up working at Planned Parenthood for a couple, for three or four years. And it was, my mom cried because in India, you don't work when you're going to school. So if you need to work, your parents aren't doing something right. They have, they have failed you in some way. Um, You know, it's very like, you're a child and your job is to study. And then when you're done with all of your studies, then you move on to this next phase in your life, which is to get married and have a job. So it's very sort of rigid that way. You're, you know, you study and then you get married and have a job. And then once your kids leave, then you sort of dedicate yourself to your community. And at the end of your life, you dedicate yourself to spiritual, you know, studies and focus. Um, And then you depart the world. And so this idea of mixing the two Working and studying should never go together. And if you have to work, that means we're not doing what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. We're not taking care of our responsibility to our children. Instead, again, going back to that place of, instead of understanding, this is not India. And working in college is actually a leg up for a career. Mm -hmm. That if you go out of four years of college, and I went to two years of graduate school too, so it was like 
So I went six years and I have no job experience. Yeah, you need that. That's the thing. It's like right now, if I have a 25-year-old wanting to work for me, if they're right out of college and never had any work experience or volunteer experience or internship experience, they're not going to even get an interview. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes back to what we were saying, a couple of things that we were saying in the beginning was having to explain to your immigrant parents, no, this is just how it is here. And that is exhausting to have to constantly kind of fight that, that we're not, you know, I actually have a friend from Colombia and she says, I have to talk to her family who is still in Colombia. You don't understand what it's like raising a child here. We're not in Colombia. That's just not how it is. And then also how much of, you know, Shayla, what you were saying about the job situation was the question of, well, if someone finds out you have to work, how is that going to look on yeah. us? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that we never talked about that in particular, but certainly my mom and dad took it very hard. Mom took it. Mom took it way harder than dad. I do not remember this. No, you weren't in the room when we had no. that conversation. I thought I was everywhere when <laughs> I thought I was always there for the but, conversation. You know, they took it really personally. It, as if it, I was not doing it to hurt them, obviously, but that somehow they had failed me mm. um, instead of seeing a bigger picture because it just was not what they were used to. Didn't, the world in India still doesn't work that way um, for the most part. And so it was they it felt like a personal failing for them. And it wow. took it took a lot. It took several conversations for them to understand. No, this isn't about you failing me in any way. This is about me wanting this experience, you know? Okay. Yeah. I get paid for it. That's super, that's convenient. Cause I need extra money in college. You Never also did, you did, you worked at Planned Parenthood. Yeah. You didn't work at. I, right. I didn't work at like the Walgreens. At the front desk. Oh man, we should stop saying brand Dip, names. Brand here. names. We'll take them out. <laughs> we, we, I didn't work at the Grant store as a, as a checkout person. I, it was a career oriented job, but still this idea that like I somehow needed I was working during my educational years and that was a big failure on their part. Yeah, I think I had a similar experience, not quite as extreme. I know when I was in college, I was, I mean, I ended up being a psychology major and yeah, after my musical theater dreams, yeah, whatever, I ended up studying, yeah, I I studied psychology and I worked in nursing homes and it was a good job because I was getting work experience because my, actually my mom's also was, she's retired now, was a counselor. And so she knew that I would get a job as a counselor, the more people experience I had. So I worked for four years and it was very, you know, they were very proud of me then because I had this job Mm -hmm. that was very career oriented. And it's not like they told me like I couldn't like work as a waitress or I couldn't work at a grocery store, but I mean, I actually even did work as a grocery store in high school, but it was also this, I don't even know how to explain it. It was kind of like I had a good job, yeah. quote unquote. It wasn't what they said to you. It was what they didn't say, right? It was almost like this implication that, um, you had a job that worked for them, so they didn't have to have a conversation about the job that didn't work for them. 
Yes. It was so. definitely something that they could be proud of and brag to their friends about. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. My daughter is doing this and that. And it's so great. Um, which, you know, it, it they can, again, it goes back to like, well, they can brag to their friends and they're proud of it. Um, and it's, it's going to help you with your career um, as opposed to a job. Mm-hmm. All right. So one of the things that we ask all of our guests, and now that you are a friend of ours, we're going to ask you too, <laughs> is um, to just to end on kind of a fun note. What are some words that you have pulled from your, I guess, home culture from Columbia or, or whatever that you say in your everyday vernacular that's part of your your own vocabulary with your with your family. It's called familect. Okay. So even if you don't use it appropriately, right? So if it's a word that's totally out of context, that's not even used properly, but you your son knows, your ex-wife knows, your parents know what the <laughs> yeah. word is. What I'm thinking about is every single night I ask my kid if he brushed his teeth. And I nag him about brushing his teeth. And this is something my mom did also. Really? It's like always, even now, it's like, did you brush your teeth? Well, now she doesn't do it to me. She does it to my son. But it's... I would not be surprised if your mom still, in fact, bothered you about brushing your teeth. Because our mom will occasionally bug us about things like, did you take your vitamins? Mom, I have children that I have to tell them to take their vitamins. Mm -hmm. I can manage to take my vitamins. Exactly. I get, did you brush your teeth? I I love that. And did you, Karen, brush your teeth? Okay. Actually, I brushed them more than twice a day. All right, Karen's mom. Karen's mom. We did your job for you this time. You don't have to ask her. She brushed her teeth today twice. And so did my son. He will brush his teeth when I go home. You're talking directly to your mother into the microphone. Wonderful. So thank you so much yes. for being here. Thank please, you for having please me. Come back. I please definitely come back. Well, thank you. You are a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, it's been a brilliant conversation. I think both Kosha and I feel like we learned from you so much and we learned things that we didn't even know we were going to learn. And yes. that's well, one of the best you. kind of conversations. At least I think the two of us think when you learn something you didn't even know you were going to learn, that's that's the best. And I have to say, I'm honored that you invited me. And I also learned a lot. And I feel very privileged to have been able to come today. Well, well thank you. Thank we you. We are very privileged to have you. And we're only going to say goodbye if you promise to come back. Yes. I promise I will. All Fantastic. right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.